Hi there, welcome to the Second Adolescence Podcast. Here, we talk about all things queer healing and second adolescence. So what is second adolescence, you might ask? Second adolescence is a sort of developmental life stage queer people navigate in our post-coming out adult years after growing up within an anti-queer world. For many, second adolescence is about healing the wounds of our younger queer selves, gaining the experiences they missed out on, and unlocking what it means for us to exist as our most free and true selves. I am your host, Adam James Cohen, psychotherapist and human who went through his own second adolescence. This week's guest is Tony C, who uses he, him pronouns. I loved getting to chat with Tony and was really touched by his intention of wanting to come on the show about how it could, in his words, be helpful to some listeners to hear from someone who hasn't totally gotten their life together and is still in the middle of growing up. I so appreciated Tony's contribution of his story and his mental health journey to this show, and I'm really excited to invite you into the conversation. And as with each episode of Second Adolescence, I really wanna invite you as listener to listen with open curiosity, knowing that each of our stories are different and unique. You might hear some guests share things that really differ from your experience, whereas other guests might share things that really speak to what you went through or are currently going through. And I really hope that all of this happens and that together we can continue growing and expanding our awareness of what life and queerness and healing can be for folks. If after the show you wanna connect further, feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more, or you can follow the show on Instagram at, at Second Adolescence Pod. All right, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Second Adolescence. I'm really curious to see where this conversation goes and to learn more about you and your story. But I guess, yeah, before going anywhere, I like to invite the guests to always introduce themselves to give the listeners a little mini taste for who the person is behind the voice. So yeah, and I know like the who are you question is impossible, but I guess little snapshots before we get started. Who are you? So I'm Tony, he, him. My mom's from Brazil. My dad's like a European mix. I went to public elementary school for five years, and then I was homeschooled, did not like school for a lot of reasons. I grew up around most of my mom's family, her aunts, sisters, my cousins. Uh, my dad stayed home, took care of us, so it's kind of unusual in the 90s. Hmm. I have an older brother and sister. You're the baby of the family? Yeah, I am. <laughs> Uh-huh. I'm kind of that stereotype movies used to have about like this 30-year-old guy who lives in their parents' basement and writes. That's me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> right now. Uh-huh. That's about it right now. Cool. Okay, cool. And you say you say and writes? Did I hear writes? Yes. Yeah. So kind of tell me about tell me about that. What does writing look like for you? My dream job would be to like write young adult novels with queer characters. <sighs> so that may or may not ever happen. I read a lot. Yeah. Do you read a lot of queer YA? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that so many of us do. And I'm curious to dive more into that, like our experience as adults being drawn to these queer teen young person stories. I guess maybe we'll just start right there. Let's dive right in. What do you know for you? What draws you to that type of content? Two things. One is I didn't go to a high school. I was homeschooled. So that kind of gives you a stunted adolescence to begin with. So it's always, I'm always wondering about this question, what would high school have been like for me? And so I think there's a lot of 
I don't know, is that like four years now? <laughs> kind of wondering, imagining myself in these situations. Totally. And then, you know, also having queer characters and stories, which were very little in the 90s. Like, I remember it being a big deal when Ellen came out on her TV show. And Will and Grace was like brand new, like the only thing. I mean, so much has changed since then, but mm-hmm. like that didn't help me growing up. <laughs> right. So I think it's kind of like that combination. And that's kind of what started making me think about the cycle adolescence is <gasps> seeing other adults who are also into a lot of like young adult storylines, books, movies. And I started to think like a year ago, maybe they also didn't have like an ideal adolescence, mm-hmm. high school experience growing up. So they're like, trying to have a nicer one. Mm. And then like I saw a post on Instagram for your podcast and I was like, oh, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, got it. So like before being exposed to this idea of second adolescence, you yourself were already, because growing up in kind of a homeschooling context, you were already missing out. On top of that was there's the queerness layer, but just you were missing out in general from kind of what is perceived as typical adolescence, typical high school, all of that. So you're already feeling kind of stunted and removed. Yeah. And then uh, this uh, queerness was another layer. And then, yeah, you mentioned when, as you're reading or engaging with queer young adult stories, it kind of becomes this mechanism to kind of put yourself there and imagine like what that would be like for you if you were to have those experiences. I'm curious if you could share like, what is it like when you're in that place, when you are in that state of imagining, gosh, how would that be for me? Or yeah. It's a lot of daydreaming, Mm -hmm. like before I wake up, before I go to bed, I'll like take certain moments that have happened and be like, well, what if I had gone that way? And like, I had a chance to go back to high school because like homeschooling was very much a choice for me. Um, it wasn't, my parents were not religious or anything with it. Mm. So it was kind of like, almost every year, it's like, well, do you want to go back to school or not? <laughs> mm. And you mentioned your parents kind of checking in with you, like, do you want to go back to school or not? It sounds like you kept making that decision to stay in the homeschooling context. What do you remember feeling then about what it might be like if you went to school or why did you make that decision? You know, there's a lot of like stress and anxiety and so going into like this huge, big, unknown thing of yeah. the school was kind right. of daunting. Totally. Since my older brother and sister went to school and they, mm. you know, were more typical. And mm. I had friends and stuff. Mm. When I would have started high school, my sister would have been a senior. And I didn't really want to go to like the same school that she was in. Yeah. And they were building a new high school in this town. And I'm like, if they were open, maybe I would go there. <laughs> <laughs> but they were still under construction. So I don't know. It was kind of also a very superficial check-in with me. They weren't diving deep and understanding questions on how things were going. It was very much, do you like this? And I'm just like, I can just say, okay. Mm. I don't know. Does that really answer? Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, as an adult now looking back, how do you feel about the decision to stay in the homeschooling context? The decision on your parents' part to not necessarily pry. Yeah. I remind myself a lot that I did what worked for me at the time. Mm. So sure, I could have made different decisions, but they would have been like very uncomfortable for me at the time. Mm. Really pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. Mm. So I did what worked for me. Yeah. I love that. And I think like, for any of us who have like whatever our history is and whatever kind of happened for 
our adolescent selves, younger selves, like bringing in this self-compassionate lens of even if, say, you were to go back in time now with the full understanding or experiences or knowledge, whatever we have as adults, if we could go back in time and maybe we'd want things to be different, there's this real need to kind of give space to, well, like I was doing the best I could with what I had, like that Uh whole notion I love. And so I really appreciate you naming that and also kind of modeling for a helpful approach that each of us can kind of take as we go back in and look at these different parts of our story. So, okay, cool, cool. Okay, wait, so back up. Where where did you grow up? Where was this all happening? So two places. Like my elementary school ages were in like a small town in Santa Barbara County. Mm. And then we moved to suburbs in San Diego mm. when I was 12. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so like, what do you remember? And how old are you again? I'm 34 now. Okay, so this was like, yeah. Born in late eighties, kind of adolescence happening, kind of latter nineties, early two thousands. Like, yes. what, what, what do you remember? Like, what was culture like then? Like, as you were growing up in, in like that middle school age, yeah. What do you remember? Kind of coming to learn about kind of what it means to be a human. What if any messaging around queerness or gender norms? I'm curious. Like, yeah. What, what was the soup you were kind of cooked within? You know, I've really been trying to think. Like, when was my first like exposure to like something gay? Yeah. I remember there was this little book and it was somewhere between like ages 10 and four that I read this book and it was about a parade and one of the words in there was gay. And like, it was the only word I did not know in the whole book. I didn't know what it meant, never heard it before. So I asked my dad and he very matter of fact, he was like, well, it used to mean happy, but now it means like two guys or two women who are together. And I was like, okay. My brother and sister would kind of be the ones that would be kind of like policing behaviors. Like mm. I remember my brother saying San Francisco was the gate bay one time, kind of like in mm. a negative way. Mm. I was just like, okay, whatever. There's also the story that I knew growing up that when my brother went to kindergarten, he came home and he told my mom, nobody else there can know that he has Barbies. Cause my mom was very much into us playing with every kind of toy. Mm. So like I knew that going into elementary school and I mm. played with, you know, dolls and, things like that way more than he ever did. (laughs) (laughs) So like there was kind of definitely like an uncomfortableness with going to school and like Mm -hmm. all these things I do at home, like I'm kind of not supposed to do them at school. So like my last couple of years of elementary school, like during recess, I just go walk around all by myself over the school. Mm -hmm. And then probably the biggest impact I had from like my parents was my dad was talking on the phone to his friend who had a kid who was going into middle school and he was telling his friend about things that he talked to my brother about when my brother went to middle school and he was telling my brother like you know people tease you or bully you for things like they might say you're gay but you know there's nobody else in our family who's gay so you're not gay Hmm. and I mean I'm like eight years old when I hear this and I'm like okay it seemed plausible Hmm. (laughs) and like you're Hmm. at that age when like your parents know everything, right? Of course, right, right. So with that, I'm just kind of like, well, that's not going to be me. <laughs> mm. When It makes me curious, like, when in your story do you look back and start to see queerness? Because I hear that you're getting these messaging around queerness and kind of mm-hmm. like messaging around how that's not going to be you or that's not who we are as a family, like just like a lot of kind of not messaging I'm curious what then happened as queerness perhaps started showing up in your story. How did you then experience that? So when I was a teenager, there would be other guys around. My sister had a friend and there were other people. 
Mm. And my family would be like, they're probably gay, these guys. And I'm like, well, they're a lot like me. Mm. And I'm like, you guys think they're gay. And I'm like, I'm not gay. Maybe we're just like not these macho, toxic masculinity type guys. Mm. Um, Well, I guess it turns out there is a thing to us being gay. (laughs) Mm. What really started me accepting and like acknowledging that, you know, I am gay was when I was 18, I moved back to small town, Santa Barbara County. I lived with my grandma. I was going to a community college. My second semester, I was taking intro to psychology class. And they had this like chapter on LGBT issues. Was not part of the assigned reading, but I'm like, I need to read that. Mm. And like my jaw dropped several times. I'm like, this sounds exactly like my life. Wow. Everything about it sounded exactly like my life. And I was like, okay, I'll have to come back to this. Well, yeah, like what what parts, like what do you remember in that section that was really communicating, whoa, this isn't this is my life. How you feel growing up and like kind of like disconnects you have with the world, how like patterns of relationships with people, mm. kind of having a not misunderstanding of things or a distance between things. Mm. And I was like, that's happened, that's happened, that's happened, like taking all these little boxes off. Yeah. Kind of going up to that point, I'm like, I've noticed, I'm like, there's a lot of rationalization of things. Like, okay, you're masturbating. And like, you know, you might kind of start thinking about someone of the opposite gender or sex. And then, like, at some point, you kind of start thinking about things more like yourself. Mm. And like, at the time, I'm like, well, you know, I'm more familiar with that because those are the body parts I have. So mm. maybe that's why it's just more familiar. Right. And so, like, in college, there's like generally a lot more women in classes than there are men. And early on, I noticed, well, I'm paying like a lot more attention to like the 10 guys in classes as opposed to the 30 women. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, there's less of them. It's easier to like keep track of them every day. They seem mm-hmm. paying attention to what they're wearing. And then I'm like, well, maybe it's just me comparing myself because I haven't been around a lot of people. But then it's like, well, I guess there's something else to like my like wanting to look at men more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure what else. No, no, no. And like, as that was happening for you, as you were kind of starting to kind of have that observation and kind of starting to ask those questions for yourself, maybe there's something more here. Like, how do you remember feeling about that? About, oh, what if this is me? I mean, part of it was thinking like, well, that would answer a lot of questions. Mm. It might be kind of a relief. Because mm. late teens to my early 20s, I was kind of mm. getting very depressed. So it's like, well, maybe that will kind of be an answer to that. Mm. I didn't feel like I have like a real crush on a guy like in person until 2019. I'm like 21 and there's this guy in my math class. And that's like, I'm like, okay, this is definitely a crush. <laughs> mm. What was that like to feel? I don't know. I might have been like kind of like finally. It was kind of interesting because I ended up coming out to a cousin, my closest cousin I have. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like a year younger than me. We've hung out all our lives. Like at the end of 2008, it was a good moment. That was like at the end of 2008. So in 2009, spring, I have these classes. And like, I'm making friends. This is, there's a class that the guy I have a crush on is in. And like nothing happens with him. But it was, so it was like, ended up being like a year later when I finally, it was like just before my 22nd birthday. I'm 21. I'm like, I still want to kiss a guy before I'm like too old. 
Um, so that finally happens in March. And then, like, in April, I meet some more gay guys, start mm. hooking up. And, like, in May, I meet this guy. He wants to be boyfriends. And looking back, I'm like, I didn't have the vocabulary to say what I needed to say. Mm. Um, so I ended up just saying yes, because I'm like, well, I do want a boyfriend. I don't want a boyfriend, like, right now. Mm. But So we started dating. And then like, I come up to my parents in June. Well, I come up to my mom. I was going to come up to my dad, but he was like out of town. So like mm-hmm. we're having lunch one day and I'm like, um, the guy was dating. My parents had met him. He was like, this is my friend. And so at lunch, I was just like, so we're dating. He's my boyfriend. And my mom's like all excited. Like, oh, do you guys like each other? Do you really like each other? Mm-hmm. And then she's like, do you want me to tell people in the family? Do you want me to tell your dad? I don't think he knows. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to be keeping it a secret from people. So you can tell people. I don't care. Mm. I'm not telling you to tell them, but whatever. So she ends up coming out for me, basically. Mm-hmm. I guess I need to backtrack a little bit. Sure. So when I was 10 and like Titanic came out, I was really into that movie. Mm. And then also Leonardo DiCaprio's like Romeo and Juliet that came out. Mm. Um, so there's one night when my mom asked me, like, you like Leonardo, don't you? And I'm kind of like, um, kind of? I'm like, mm. I didn't know like what to say, how to respond yeah. to that. I mean, like, she wasn't like, it's okay or anything. She just kind of left it at, you like him. Mm. And then early in 2009, I, I'm kind of like starting to feel suicidal. So I called my cousin I'd come out to a few months Mm -hmm. ago in the middle of the night and by the time he answers the phone I'm like I've calmed down so I'm like I'm okay nothing's wrong he's like why are you calling me right now Mm. so we talk for a little bit and then it's done well in the morning my mom's like so your cousin told his mom to talk to me about you not feeling well and like he was in the military so he's like had all this suicide training Mm. so January 2009, my parents find out I'm a little suicidal. So they're like, we'll go to therapy. I had my own therapist. We went to some family therapy. Mm. And that's kind of going along. And then in the summertime, my mom, I'm going along on a little trip. My mom writes me this letter and gives me some books. And she's like, I know you've been having a hard time. And like, I don't know what it is. Maybe you should talk to your therapist about this. She's like, I don't know if you're gay or not, but you should talk to them. And she gave me these like young adult books with gay characters on them. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's nice. I already have been talking to my therapist about this because like at the intake, they ask you all these questions and my parents gave me this little stack of like different therapists that the insurance covers. And I'm like, well, who do you want to go to? Mm. I chose like three. I'm like, you guys can make the call. (laughs) Mm. And I chose like three that like had LGBTQ experiences and like could deal with that. Mm. And so like, the intake they're asking you like how do you identify like what's your orientation and I'm just like I don't know mm. <laughs> and so that was like a year before I ended up coming out that my mom gave me these books and uh-huh. she's like talk to your therapist about this uh-huh. Uh-huh. so like kind of supportive but like still on the outside mm. and then going to like coming out to I heard saying like I don't think your dad knows I'm like are you sure because like since I'd read the intro to psychology textbook, I had, you know, kind of been more open about being myself, stepping in that and like trying out different things to see people's reactions. Mm. And like my dad made this joke, like, 
my mom, her sisters, my sister were going on this girl's cruise. Like, it was just, like, the ladies. And my dad's like, well, you could go to me. I was like, okay, he's kind of seeing things. Mm. <laughs> and then after I came out, my mom was asking about my therapist. And she's like, have you talked to him about this? Is he? And I'm like, he's gay. So, yeah, we have talked about this. My dad's like, well, I knew. I looked up the guy's website. Hmm. Hmm. What's it like in this moment to go back to that period of time and to think about how all of that went down? I don't know. In some ways, it was kind of a whirlwind. That mm. seemed to be happening kind of fast. And this is actually something I really wanted to say was, you know, one of my kind of more suicidal times, I was like, you know, you haven't lived your life as an out gay man, so you need to do that before you like make this like life-ending choice. Mm-hmm. To me, that kind of really like I just kind of like dumped all in on you know being gay, being out and open. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to like suffer internalized homophobia and things like that. And like. Mm-hmm. That's in the past. Because <laughs> you, can, you can step past that. Huh, huh. And how did you step past that? What kind of what did that look like? It looks different for each of us, and there's lots of different things we do to try to unlearn this internalized homophobia, this internalized anti queerness. And you know, for many of us, it's an ongoing thing. Um, but curious, like, what does that look like for you? It was a lot of you know just accepting things, accepting people, not judging. You know, people's kinks, their interests, the countercultural things, like, you know, it's all okay. Yeah. I think that was a lot of it. There's probably still I have some I haven't dealt with yet. Mm. But kind of like just a little reminder when these things come up, like, you know, it's okay. People are doing what they do. Mm. I don't know if there's anything else on that. No, yeah, no. I mean, that itself is like really helpful. It's just kind of being aware of when it pops up even now. And and I like to even like name it internally for myself whenever I notice like some type of anti-queer belief pop up either about myself or as you're speaking to, it can also show up in our lens with how we look at queerness externally. It's helpful sometimes for me to just even name it as that like, oh, okay, yeah, there's like anti-queerness, like skewing my lens again. Let me kind of bring in some new data and a new belief to recognize, hey, wait, yeah, that's not how I feel. That's not my perspective now. That's just what, like an old script that I came to learn and gradually kind of, Mm -hmm. we keep rewriting a new script. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Okay, so then like after that coming out period with your family, with yourself, being in therapy, it sounds like a lot is happening during this time. What happens next in your story? I start dating this guy and I come out like mm-hmm. a month later. And that's in the summertime. In January, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to move to San Francisco. I do that. Mm-hmm. Why do you decide to move? I've always liked San Francisco. I was kind of having the opportunity to go to school there. Mm-hmm. and figured I should take it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I break up with my boyfriend because I'm like, we really jumped into this dating thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to be single, wild, and crazy. And he kind of wanted to go, but I'm like, no. Mm. <laughs> I need to be single. And I ended up taking a lot of really great like LGBT history and community classes at the city college there. I start dating around more. <gasps> I was really nervous the first time I went on Grindr. Mm. I was like, I know it's location-based. I'm like, I don't want people to know exactly where I live. Mm. So I'm like, I went to the mall. <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, that's where I logged in. And then I was like, 
Oh, they don't like have a map that shows you. It's just people's pictures in rows. I was like, okay. Mm. <laughs> mm. And how was that for you to start? Sounds like you started dating. I mean, gosh, really, even within one year, it sounds like you like in March and mm-hmm. in, in kind of back in kind of Santa Barbara County. I think you were starting to start having these experiences. Jump, then quickly moved into this first relationship that ended. Moved to San Francisco. This next level of kind of starting to pursue having experiences. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, to to get on Grinder for the first time to start kind of trying to have these experiences. What was going on? I don't know. It was a lot of fun. I'm like, okay, I'm finally living life. <laughs> mm. I guess that was mostly it. I'm a very shy person, so it's way easier for me to like talk to people online than to like just go up to a person in person. Mm. So I don't know. I was definitely taking advantage of a lot of things in San Francisco, like the queer poetry nights, the mm. LGBT center and their groups they had, going to the different theaters and shows in San Francisco. It was kind of weird though, because there were several times I'd go to gay bars and the bouncer would kind of be like, do you know what place this is? Hmm. Are you sure you're gay? And I'm just kind of like, whoa, I'm here. <laughs> so, whoa, whoa. Yeah, it was really weird. I'm like, okay. Oh, yuck. This bouncer policing your enough queerness, like being queer enough? What? Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. One of them I might have been a little more understandable. It was a place that had like this 18 and over gay night so it's not like they're gay all the time mm. but I mean like I was showing up there with like all these other young gay dudes so I'm like mm. I'm kind of like in the middle of this group why are you like asking me huh as you look back at your San Francisco chapter you know I think for a lot of us there can be this desire to migrate to a place where queerness is more integrated into the fabric of the city, the town. Not all of us have the ability to mm-hmm. make that decision and make that move, which again kind of speaks to the power of the internet offering kind of queer spaces for folks. But it can also be common though to do this sort of like physical queer migration. And I'm curious as you look back at your San Francisco chapter, what did it do for you to live there? I would say it was an education. Mm. I mean several ways. Like the city college has like some amazing classes about gay history and life mm. and like queer cinema classes, mm-hmm. gay male relationships classes, and like really amazing teachers, really good books that they have you read in class. But yeah, also just being around like the wider community. Mm. If I had made more friends, more of like a support system, I guess I might have stayed in San Francisco, but. At some point, I kind of like wasn't finishing my classes. I was like kind of depressed and staying home all the time. Mm. So I like moved back in with my parents. And they had moved to a nicer place. They live in Long Beach mm. um, in Southern California. And that has a gay community here. Mm-hmm. It's not a small town. So yeah, part of moving to San Francisco definitely was wanting to be around larger gay community and culture. Mm. And then moving back to, or moving to Long Beach. When did that happen? What year was that? So I moved from San Francisco to Long Beach in 2013. And I've been here ever since. So then like you moved to Long Beach. What happens next for you? Sounds like kind of San Francisco, your depression got activated and it got to a point where you were feeling pulled to come back and have the support of your family system. How did that next chapter go for you? Kind of interesting. Hmm. There was this guy I had started talking to when I was in San Francisco. We started talking I move, and 
and we still talk a lot. We first start dating him for a few years, and he moves down to Long Beach. And then we break up. He goes away. And then I'm single again. Mm. I'm in, like, 2016. And it's funny, around this time, my aunt, I had an aunt ask me, what's it like to date? Because, like, you're really shy. Mm. And I'm like, you know, it became really, it became easier to date people after going on dates with guys who are shy than I am. Mm. Because I would go on some dates and it gets to the point where I'm like, if I don't say anything, nobody's going to say anything. (sighs) And I literally asked the guy, like, are you shy? And he's like, yeah. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, if he's not going to talk, then I can just ask whatever I want to ask. That was actually nice because then I got to like kind of experiment with, you know, talking about things that I'm more interested in and not like what society tries to push on you. This is what you talk about on a date. This is what you do. So it was kind of interesting, like, you know, being around Shire people and like that kind of like teaching me things. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Totally. Totally. And like kind of inviting you to kind of expand Mm -hmm. both your zone of comfort, but also it sounds like it offered this interesting thing where it allowed you to kind of step outside of this as a person on date. I'm supposed to show up in this way and ask about these things and talk about this. It allowed you to kind of shed that and just kind of gradually show up more authentically where you are most curious about as Mm -hmm. your authentic self. Oh, cool. Hmm. And then what happens next in your story? So I'm single for a few years here in Long Beach. And then one of the first guys I met, I guess, 12 years ago now, we've kind of kept in touch. And we were always like dating other people or single at the wrong times or wanting to be single. You know, like just before the pandemic, we're both single. We're both kind of like kind of ready to be boyfriends. So we start dating. And it's funny. People are like, oh, you guys have been together 10 years. And it's like, no. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. We just met each other way back when. Hmm. And so we've been dating I guess since the start of the pandemic. And that's been nice. Hmm. I'm curious, like, do you see, as you think about how you experience this relationship and show up now versus relationships when you were younger and how you experienced showing up then, like, what do you see as similar and what do you see as different? Like, do you see where things have either changed or, yeah, what do you see there? I have noticed that it is kind of a different I guess, skill set to, like, stay in a relationship as opposed to, like, starting one. Mm, mm. Like, there's new things to learn about communicating with someone that has been around a long time and you're around for a long time and you want to keep things going. That's kind of its own little learning curve. And so that's, like, the biggest thing I've noticed, like, I'm learning, like, it's always the advice out there, communication's important. And I'm like, I guess it kind of is. Kind of interesting because when I was a kid, like the only couple that was like together long term in my family were my parents mm. that I was around. Mm. My grandparents had been divorced, most of my aunts were kind of single. Mm. My later childhood, some of them started getting married. So mm. to me, it was always you know the American dream of like the two parents, so I pick a fence and house. I'm like, that's not mm-hmm. common for most people. Mm. I guess in some ways relationship dynamics are kind of new to me. Yeah. And I've always kind of like understood them that way. There's not one set way. Yeah. Yeah. It's making me think about hearing you talk about kind of your growth and kind of communication and kind of understanding of different relationship dynamics and all of that. Makes me think about how in kind of setting up you have be coming onto the podcast, you mentioned really identifying as someone who's like really in the midst of your own second adolescence, in the midst of your own process with this. I'm curious, like what else comes to mind 
to really illustrate that. Like, where are you at in terms of what do you notice as the parts of yourself or your experience where you're developing more comfort or growth in? Where are there areas where you're curious to continue seeing some more evolution in? Where are we at right now? And also, what does it mean for you to be in your second adolescence right now? How do you kind of describe what that is for you? You know, as I thought about coming on here, I'm like, I feel like the interpersonal relationship part of my second adolescence is kind of like, that's had a nice development. Mm. <laughs> but the, what do I want to do with my life kind of question, that's the part that still has a struggle. And like, you know, I've had plenty of relationship experiences, different types. So I'm like, you know, I'm feeling comfortable with that. Mm. You know, what am I going to spend my time doing? I don't know. That's what I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm like, well, I'm kind of a writer, but I am not like actively writing. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, what mm-hmm. else do I want to do? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of goes back to, you know, giving yourself some grace and space to be awkward and, yeah. you know, do things that are uncomfortable, do things that, you know, people might not like because, you know, you don't know better. And like, I kind of wish we would offer each other more space to like still learn and grow. Because, I mean, like, the queer community does not have the early foundation of an early, typical first adolescence. Mm. So, I mean, like, I try to model that Mm. (laughs) with dealing with other people and things. I don't know how successful that is. Um, Yeah, you mentioned earlier kind of having this grace and compassion for yourself. And again, that's come up. And I just, like, I want to scream that from the mountaintops. Like, that is such the way to approach ourselves and others, but ourselves and our experience, to approach it from this space of acceptance and compassion and kind of understanding kind of, hey, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm experiencing and not having to place any judgment or shame or all of that. And it's not easy. Like our world does not train us to be self-compassionate. Our world does not train us to have grace and give ourselves grace for ourselves. And so I just really appreciate you again, highlighting that. And I really experienced that as an invitation for, for myself, for listeners to just to continue exploring, developing that way of being with ourselves. How did you develop that for you? I don't know. Probably help from... I don't know, 10 years of therapy. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know, kind of a need. Spending so much time in my head mm. and, you know, trying different things and like realizing the scene and know, learning that, you know, those things don't work for me. Those things are kind of lead to other bad habits. <laughs> mm. So it's kind of become, I don't know, I guess the best coping mechanism or like life skill I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. I guess I kind of want to say, like, having to deal with depression and anxiety has also kind of, like, really led to that. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do when I wake up every day. Like, something could be off, and right. I don't really know why. Uh-huh. Yeah, so having the experience where the depression or the anxiety can come up and there's some unknown, unpredictable nature of that at times has kind of given you more training to kind of be able to kind of just pull back and see, okay, well, let's see where I'm at. And if the, if it's up, then okay, then I'll adjust. So yeah, I, that really makes sense how having that type of mental health experience can help train us to just take a step back a little bit and accept, okay, here's where I'm at. The, okay, the depression's up. Okay, the anxiety's up. All right. Now I would just roll with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, gosh, Tony, this has been so lovely. I'm looking at the time. I got to let you go in a sec, but 
curious, like, was there anything that hasn't been shared yet that wanted to be a part of this conversation? I mean, there's so much, I'm sure, in your story and in your life, so much to say, but anything within this conversation that wants to come up that hasn't yet? You know, I was going to say, like, when you're like, how did this second adolescence like, kind of really relate to you, to me? Mm. After I saw the post about your podcast on Instagram and I started listening to them, like, I was like, wow, like, in each episode, with each conversation you have, I'm like, I'm picking up little puzzle pieces of my life. And I'm like, this is like really great, like, to hear other people's stories, learn, kind of like listen to their experiences and be like, see where mine fits with theirs and where theirs fits with mine and like how that's, you know, a lot of people are having like a similar struggles. Mm. That's one thing I wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so touched to hear that previous episodes of this podcast has been a helpful tool in your own process. And I love that image of like, they're each different puzzle pieces that can help fill in some blank spaces and kind of connect the pieces. That's really powerful and really cool. And I'm just struck by you're now on the show. You're now offering a puzzle piece for folks. And Mm -hmm. I guess like, what is that like to be here, to have been on this conversation, to share your story? What has that been like? (laughs) I need to pat myself on the back for doing this. Mm. Um, This is definitely like, stepping out of my comfort zone and I was studying psychology for a lot in college and kind of like I don't think I'm going to pursue that enough to like become a therapist myself which had been something I was going to do and I'm like well you know going on this podcast is kind of like a little in-between step for myself of you know sharing my story and like sharing a story and possibly helping other people mm-hmm. absolutely ah so I'm gonna like pat myself on the back Hell yeah. That's so cool. And I I feel so touched that you, you know, it's it takes courage to kind of share our story. And particularly if we're someone who leans more introverted or shy, like that is absolutely not how we typically navigate through mm-hmm. the world with a lot of comfort. And I'm just I just feel so touched that you move through that to offer your story to this collective work. And again, to offer a potential puzzle piece for folks who themselves are in their own process of, of healing and their own process of growing, you know, as we all are continuing to do. And so I just feel so grateful that you wanted to be here and wanted to come on and share your story. And yeah, keep that pat on your back going. Really cool, really cool. Uh, well, thank you. And also you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for joining us for today's conversation. Feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more. And you can connect further by following the show on Instagram at at secondadolescencepod. If you're interested in being a future guest on the show and you want to come on and share about your own second adolescence, visit secondadolescencepod.com slash be a guest and you can submit your interest there. All right, that's it for me for now. Whether it's morning, afternoon, night, wherever we're finding you in your day, go on out there and keep doing things that would make younger you absolutely thrilled. That is what it's all about. Mm. All right, take good care.